Hello, Patriots! This is Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. Bringing you insight from outside the mainstream, I am your host, Ryan. Today we'll talk about how the financialization of the American economy is actually hurting it. We'll destroy an op-ed from a supposed law professor in the LA Times. And we'll end today's show with a concerning video interview of some college students. Next, I'm Living with Liberty. Last show, I said that offshoring a large swath of the U.S. manufacturing sector has left the workers in that sector and our economy overall uh, with less wealth. Another part of the equation has been the financialization of our economy. So what do I mean by that? It really means a takeover of the banking, the banks, uh, private equity firms, etc. of our economy. They're the ones that run our economy now. It's all about uh, dollars and short-term returns, which we'll get into in a minute here. Now, I have a story uh, titled, How the Financialization of America Hurt Workers and the Economy by Michael Collins. I'll admit this story, this article, is an interesting case study in how the financial sector has actually worked to weaken our economy and has really gained an ever-increasing role in, in the economy and in how it works. And the effects haven't been good. I mean, I first read the uh, read the article. Admittedly, said, "Okay, this is this is just someone kind of railing against the big banks, against big business, etc." But unlike a lot of articles that you see with that kind of undertone, this has some meat to it. It has some statistics to it. it has some really good examples to it of how how the banks and and financial firms taking over our economy has really not been a good thing for for workers, for our manufacturing sector, etc. Now, I think as we go through this, as I mentioned this, we all inherently know that the banks and investment firms rule the economy. Uh, But when you put the numbers to it and compare today to what we had in the middle of the 20th century, it's actually pretty eye-opening. Now, at the height of our manufacturing prowess in the mid-20th century, so call about 1960s or so, right about in there, the manufacturing sector accounted for 40% of the profits and 29% of the nation's jobs. So kind of remember those numbers for a second here. I'm going to give you some uh, others as, as a point of comparison. So if we look at present day, where finance and the financial industry tends to rule the the economy, uh, we have the same. We have the financial industry today now accounts for 40% of the profits, so we've had a flip there in terms of who's generating the wealth and the profits for our economy. And here's, here's the real kicker, though. The financial sector only accounts for 5% of the nation's jobs. So that's a 24% drop in the number of people employed in in a sector that's generating, you know, comparable uh, profits, proper uh, comparable wealth to to kind of the mid 20th century. And you might look at that and say, well, that seems like we've got uh, more productivity. We're actually doing better, right? Well, let's take a look at what that has done because I've read this article, like I said, a couple times and. 
each time I read it and think about it more, I don't think it's such a good thing that we have the same amount of profits being generated in a sector that employs less people. So what has this all done now that we've kind of flipped the economy and we have a sector generating wealth at, at the clip manufacturing did in its heyday, but with far less people? It's concentrated that wealth among a few people by replacing high employment, a high employment industry like manufacturing with a low employment industry like finance. You don't have, you don't need as many bankers. You don't need as many financial advisors. You don't need as many uh people running investment firms like you do in manufacturing. Manufacturing is labor intensive. You have people doing certain jobs, especially in an assembly operation. So this kind of flipping of our economy from, call it an industrial one, if you will, to one that's more services-based, and finance is definitely a services-based business, has really led to a, this concentration of wealth that we like to hear certain segments of the population complain about. I mean, I've heard it on both sides, so I don't want to say it's it's just the left. Uh, I've heard a few on the right talk about it as well, and I think the the difference in between is how each side wants to go about fixing you know this issue of uh, of where we have this concentration of wealth in a in a certain sector that is now monopolizing our economy. It's it's really put the long-term health of our economy at risk with this concentration of wealth and, and this concentration of, of uh, uh, profits being generated, wealth being generated in an industry with, with low employment. The, the banks rule the economy, and what they're doing with this, and this is where the other piece of this article go, gets into, and it's really an interesting piece, is how this concentration of wealth or this, this generation of profits in the financial industry has really been courtesy of a debt bubble that's been building. And, and, and the banks use debt to, and the, the investment firms, the private equity firms, use debt uh, to get a hold of or, or get, to, uh, or get uh, quicker returns on short-term, uh, their short-term investments. So their, their quest is really for short-term profits and gains here. And, and this is from the, the Collins piece. He said this, debt is the lifeblood of financialization. It is where the finance sector makes the most money. According to the U.S. Federal Reserve, total household and business debt has had phenomenal growth, increasing from $2.4 trillion in 1974 to $54.3 trillion in 2019. And what is emerging is a new kind of speculative bubble based on consumer and corporate debt. We'll get into the consumer debt a little bit too here in a minute, but th that is a massive increase. You're talking about adding more than a trillion dollars in the overall debt of our economy over the course of, what is that, 45 years? That is a healthy clip of of debt growth. And and it, debt is a drag on on finances, right? We know that. But what are we? What what kind of uh, um, financial kind of situation are we in today, if you will? It's it, it, everything's debt, right? I mean, you look at our government. How do we fund anything these days? It's debt. We have a huge deficit that's grown since 2019, and uh, significantly, uh, and it's been both parties are have been in fault at fault with that. I'm not. 
saying one's been better than the other in in fiscal uh, responsibility because they both have been bad at it. Democrats seem to have more pet projects. They want to send money here, there, and everywhere. But when you think about things like sending money to Ukraine and and uh, you know some of these other pet projects of of their own Republicans uh, have been just as complicit in it. You've had some good ones vote against it. Have have uh, said we need fiscal restraint and and uh, and responsibility here. But you've had others that said, yeah, let's do it. Putin bad. Let's send Ukraine more money or whatever. So Republicans have been just as complicit in it. Well, you know, this whole thing, it doesn't sound good, does it? We're talking about a new speculative bubble based on consumer and corporate credit. That's, and that's been building over the years. It, it can, and it really sounds like history is repeating itself in a way, doesn't it? The 2008 recession was triggered in part by a huge debt bubble in the housing market. People buying uh, houses, getting mortgages they couldn't afford. The whole thing eventually collapsed because people couldn't pay it once their adjustable rate mortgages came due. And we had the housing crash and a huge recession because of it. it well, that's one part. I don't want to say it was totally because of the housing market. I mean, there were other factors in that. But it, it was a big piece of it is, is this consumer lending and consumers racking up a bunch of debt that eventually they couldn't pay off. It was unsustainable. Now, you think about even further back, going back about 22 years now to the tech bubble of 2000, that was the same deal. You had the, the, these tech companies uh, borrowing tons of money. Tech was hot at that time. It was the new in thing. Everybody had a great idea. Investors were willing to, to throw money at it. You had tech companies just borrowing tons of money just to put on, just for stupid crap, like throwing lavish parties and, 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 Whining and dining, investors, etc. They weren't putting the money back into their business. It was to 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 kind of have the the flashiness about it to woo investors, you know, in whatever tech product they had. And eventually, you had a ton of them that just got wiped out because of it. Because debt becomes unsustainable at a certain point. I worry about our country. We might be at that tipping point now. We're we're paying billions every. I forget if it's month or quarter, but tens of billions of dollars just in interest on our national debt. It's unsustainable at a point. You get to a tipping point where you're not paying the principal off, you're just servicing the interest payments on it. We're getting there quickly. And that's that's how you get into trouble with this stuff. Now, I get it. Part of a market economy is the speculative nature of it. You've got to take a risk and then uh, you hopefully have the reward of it. And sometimes that means taking out a little debt to do so. Fine, I get it. Uh, we've all been there, right? Especially if you're a business owner, that's essentially what you do. You have an idea, you think it'll work. You might have to take out a business loan to finance it, to get it off the ground up and going. That, that's all part of it, right? But it, it comes to a point where you can't take on unsustainable debt. And where the, this this idea of borrowing uh, money to invest in business and, and things like that, where it goes sideways is when it becomes a debt-fueled bubble where you just keeps, uh, I don't know, it's maybe definition of insanity. You you just keep, okay, my business isn't doing as well. I just need to borrow more money and invest more money into it, right? So you keep doing that. And eventually it becomes just this endless cycle. You get to a point, like I said, where you can't service the interest payments, let alone the principal anymore, and you go into default. That's what happens. Now, where this is 
especially dangerous with the uh, with the economy and with what we have with the investment firms running the show with Wall Street and their demands kind of running the economy. Now, we don't have this this even this uh, idea of taking on debt, taking out loans to invest in the business. Because the demands are now of Wall Street, of investment firms, of private equity, is to get the return on that investment in an ever quicker fashion. So what happens, and what has happened, is that the demands have become that profits and shareholder value increase quickly, that you get the return on the investment, that you pay back out to the shareholders in the forms of dividends, stock buybacks, etc., and that's leading to companies borrowing massive amounts of money to make it happen. They're not borrowing these amount, these massive amounts of money to put back into the business, into R&D, to come up with a hot new product that's going to increase their profits and shareholder value. No, they're taking out money in, uh, in the form of a loan to pay the shareholders back, to pay the investors back, to pay out dividends. Now, Colin notes uh, this in his piece. It's really interesting. He says that over the last four decades, the wealth increase went to the top 10% of all earners. So the top 10% people were the ones getting wealthier, while the other 90% maintained their consumption by borrowing. So that what that means is that other 90% didn't see any real wage growth that allowed them to maintain the lifestyle they've become accustomed to so they had to go out and borrow a bunch of money to make it happen. That's a dangerous thing when you have both businesses and consumers saddled with a ton of debt. Now, I think about it as I think about this. It's directly related to the point earlier about how the economy has flipped to where we now have a low employment industry and really uh, an industry that, depending what level you're at, you might not make a lot of money in the finance industry. Yeah, you've got your big Wall Street types, the traders, et cetera, that make a lot of money, but there's other bankers out there that aren't aren't making nearly as much as they would had they been in a in a, a career in manufacturing. So you have this low employment industry accounting for a major portion of how profits are made, and, and you know it's it's really causing a problem with with the the wealth generation amongst the people. It, it really is. Now you know me; you won't find me here calling for this ridiculous notion of wealth redistribution. We're not going to do that here. You, you get by, you get wealthy, you, you get made on your own abilities. If you've got a great idea, if you're willing to work hard, whatever, you're going to make it. It's, it's that simple. Now, is everybody going to make it to the same degree? No, you're going to have some that are going to be billionaires. You're going to have some that are going to live a comfortable middle-class lifestyle. But if you're willing to put the work in, you will get there. Now, so you know I don't, I don't believe in this, and I'm not calling for this by any means, this ridiculous notion of wealth redistribution, but I do think what Collins lays out here is a little concerning. We have concentrated wealth amongst a, an elite few. We have a certain segment of the population because of this flip in our economy and, and, and who's running it, basically, uh, where people just aren't necessarily getting the opportunities to generate wealth for themselves anymore. So, and I'll say this, I don't say that lightly either, that I find this a little concerning. There's actually research, like I said, this is a well-written article. I'll link it in the description box. Go ahead and read it. I encourage you to do so. Uh, because there's research to back up that with banks running the show and investment back into businesses, as I, as I alluded to early, earlier, 
has been replaced by ever-increasing shareholder payouts. Now, in the 1960s and 70s, every dollar borrowed, every bit of debt companies took on was associated with a 40-cent increase in investment back into the business. So businesses were doing what you would expect them to do. I'm borrowing money against my business because I have some new idea, some new line of business, an expansion, whatever it may be. Uh, that I want, that we as a business have decided it's in our best interest to do. So I'm going to borrow some money and I'm going to take and, you know, put that back into the business. And that's 40, you know, call it a 40, uh, 40 cent, uh, 40 cents on every dollar was invested back into the business. Now I'm sure those loans went to some other things as well, possibly some, some shareholder payouts, right? But it wasn't in the mode of what we'll see here in a minute when, when I talk about this. Uh, kind of the the flip that's occurred, but you, you have businesses doing what you'd expect. I'm going to be fiscally responsible. I need to borrow this money, but I'm going to put a healthy chunk of it back into my business. And maybe the other, you know, part of the loan is maybe just to have some cash on hand. Who knows? But since the 1980s, less than 10 cents. Less than 10 cents. No, not even 10 cents. Less than 10 cents. Could be 9, could be 9.5, who knows. But less than 10 cents of each borrowed dollar is invested back into businesses. So what does this mean? It means that companies are borrowing money not to expand their business, not to reinvest in the business, not to help the business grow, but to pay shareholders who have become expectant of quick returns on their investment and have become, I don't know, reliant on the dividends companies pay out, or or I don't know if this is uh, like a little carrot they're dangling out there to keep investors interested in the business. I don't know. But it means companies are not investing in the business. They're borrowing way more to pay out to shareholders, which all of this harms the economy in the long run. Who creates value in the economy? It's not shareholders. The shareholders create no value in a business, unless those shareholders happen to also be uh, uh, employees of that, that corporation. Then, yeah, they're, they're creating uh, value for the business, too, not only as a shareholder, but you know, as a worker within that, in, in, uh, within that corporation. And, and there's, you know, probably extra motivation that goes into that then to create that value. But by and large, your investors, the shareholders of a corporation do not create value in a company. They do not create value in an economy. What does growth within corporations and businesses are what create growth in the economy, though that's what adds to our GDP, that's what adds to the, the tax base, is this investment and expansion in business. So that's how this harms the economy. you paying out to shareholders who aren't going to really do anything with it, but you know, maybe sit on it, maybe they reinvest it again, who knows, but it's not, they're not creating any value. I'm investing in a shareholder, what are they going to give me back? Grief, that's what they're going to give me back. So Short term, uh, the shareholders are happy. They're getting their money. They're getting their return on investment. Maybe they go and reinvest it somewhere else. Maybe they spend it. It's not helping business grow. It's not helping the economy grow because if we have a growing economy, that means businesses are expanding. That means they're getting into new lines of business. That means they're putting money towards research and development to come up with the next greatest thing. 
And they're not doing that if we're not investing back in businesses. So if you're just going to borrow money to, to pay out shareholders, the viability of the business starts to take a dive, both because of a debt load and because there's no investment reinvestment back into it. When you're borrowing money to, to pay to, to sh the shareholders to keep them happy, the business is going to suffer. The economy at, at large will suffer. When there's no investment in business, you don't create new products, you don't create new services, it doesn't grow, and that means new jobs aren't created, which means people aren't getting the opportunity to, to generate wealth of their own. Now, Collins puts it this way in his piece. He says this, financialism is totally about making money from money and has nothing to do with creating jobs or shared prosperity. You know what this sounds like to me? It sounds a bit like a Ponzi scheme to me, doesn't it? Eventually, the debt load on a business gets to be too high. It can't pay out. You know, what happens in a Ponzi scheme when it fails? You're, you're just taking and, and, you know, cycling money up the pyramid with no payout back down. Eventually, you've got to pay out back down this pyramid you created, and you have this, the, you know, money's not there. That's what happens when you take on a high debt load. Eventually, you run out of credit. Nobody's going to give you credit if you can't pay your bills. And then eventually the payouts don't come either to your investments or employees in the form of their wages, and the whole thing collapses. So eventually you get a debt load that's unsustainable. A, a business, the business fails. It leaves the employees, the lower-level shareholders especially, the ones that you know are kind of like your retirement invest, investors, right, the ones that maybe buy some stocks here or there, or they have a company and it's a healthy part of that portfolio, their 401K or whatever. They're the ones left holding the bag for the poor decisions by management to appease their short-term investors, to appease the private equity firms. Uh, by taking out ever-increasing amounts of debt to to give them payouts, basically. So it, it's everybody else that is left holding the bag instead uh, because of the bad decisions by management uh, instead of management doing what they should have been doing all along, and that's guarding the long-term health of the enterprise. If you are listening to the audio-only show and your platform allows for reviews, please give us a five-star rating. It helps others find the show. Whether you are listening to the audio version or are viewing on Rumble or YouTube, please hit that Rumble or Thumbs Up button. The more interactions we have, the more the show gets into the recommendations that the platforms give to other potential viewers out there, and it helps us to be able to spread the truth. Okay, next up I have an op-ed published in the LA Times by Erwin Temerinsky. I think that's how you say it anyway. It's titled, As a New Supreme Court Begins, Prepare for the Law to Move Even More to the Right. All right, you, I think by that title right away, you can tell this is going to be some leftist propaganda piece, and you'd be right. Here's the thing. No, the court isn't moving to the right. See, that, that's the whole thing with the, this progressive mindset. If it's, if it's not in, if the idea isn't uh, aligned with their limited ideology, then it's moving to the right. If, if, if something is maybe a compromise of, of what they want, it's not the full thing, but maybe a little bit of the thing they want, it's moving to the right. The court isn't moving to the right. It's actually moving towards the originalist intent 
the founders had for our Constitution. It's actually looking at the laws in the context of the Constitution, not this progressive, oh, the Constitution's a living, breathing document. It's meant to be interpreted however I feel like it because it makes me feel good. No, the court is moving towards uh, this idea of what was the intent of the Constitution as written? How does this law fit within that? That is what the court's moving towards here. It's not moving to the right. The court's not a, well, I I was going to say it's not a political being, but we know it is. Okay, we can can be real on that. But the the sense I get from the, the, well, five of the nine judges anyway, Roberts, I never know what way that guy's thinking, but the, the, the other five, if you want to term them conservative judges, fine. But the other five judges, the sense I get is that they are moving towards originalist intent of the Constitution. They're moving towards evaluating laws, taking cases, and evaluating them against the backdrop of what was the intention of the Constitution, what was the intention of the applicable amendment, etc. And then ruling based on that, that's not moving it to the right. Now, what's interesting here is that uh, Chemerinsky doesn't recognize that that is what's going on. One, because he's a, just an obvious political leftist hack. And two, uh, it's especially interesting because he's a law professor. He's been a career law professor, and he's currently the dean of the UC Berkeley uh, School of Law. And his expertise is supposedly in the Constitution. I looked that up on Wikipedia, full disclosure, but I figure, okay, you know, this guy being a leftist, it's going to be pretty accurate on, on Wikipedia, right? That's extremely interesting here. How, how is it that you're going to say, oh, the court's moving to the right, when it's clearly originalist intent that they're evaluating things under, and you're supposedly a constitutional law scholar? Now, it's a Berkeley, so take that for what it's worth. You know the guy's probably a leftist hack anyway. But still, uh, uh, how can you give this guy any credence? Well, uh, by the end, you probably won't if you haven't already anyway. Anyway, these these types of people like Chemerinsky that head up the law schools, it shows exactly why we have an army of law students out there now that have no idea about constitutional law and its application. I just look at Kentanji Brown-Jackson. We covered her in the last show. No idea about what the 14th Amendment actually means. Now, Chemerinsky is a liberal shill. I mean, we've, you know, he's plain and simple. That's what he is. It's evident how much hand-wringing uh, that he's doing in his piece. So we'll cover a, 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 P, uh, a couple of things from his article here. I'll link in the description box. If you want to give it the click, fine. Uh, like I said, it's always important. I do the reading of some of this crap, so you don't have to, but I think sometimes there's benefit to you reading it for yourself and, and looking at it. Maybe you have a different idea or opinion of it. You know, email the show and let me know. We'll discuss it here. So anyway, Chemerinsky starts out his article with this beauty of a statement. As the Supreme Court begins its new term on Monday, it's clear that the court's majority is determined to move the law much further to the right. The last term ended with the court overruling Roe v. Wade, dramatically expanding gun rights, rejecting the separation of church and state, and limiting the power of administrative agencies. What do we have here? Classic leftist move. Come out of the gate hot with fear-mongering. What did they do? They're going to move to the right if you don't do anything. If we don't start gathering and protesting outside the Supreme Court, outside of justices' houses, they're going to move much, much further to the right. Classic move. Fear. 
here's what you're going to lose. But you know what? I'd, I'd expect nothing less from a big government-loving leftist who wants your freedoms crushed, and that's what he wants. This guy is a socialist teaching law students, and these law students are coming out as socialists and screwing up our country more. Now, anyone that has any knowledge and respect for the Constitution knows that the rulings that are noted here in Chemerinsky's opening statement of this article are in line with getting us back to our constitutional roots and evaluating laws and, and decisions under the lens of how constitutional are they? Where in the Constitution does it guarantee this? Roe v. Wade was decided on the flimsiest of interpretations of the 14th Amendment and the, the protections of right to privacy. You look at the 14th Amendment, it's not there, period. We have a right to private self anyway, guaranteed by the Constitution. But to decide that medical procedure is constitutional uh, based on that is ridiculous because it's already protected. Medical you know, information's already protected, and we've got HIPAA on top of it. So abortion's a medical procedure. It's already protected by HIPAA. Kick it back to the states to let them decide what to do with it, which is the right was the right move. The ruling was Roe v. Wade was never constitutional, and rightly the uh, rightly because of that, the the decision lies with the states. Again, I pro life all the way. I don't agree with abortion. I wish it was outlawed everywhere, but. The decision right now from a legal standpoint is with the states, and the states decide if they want to allow it or not. Fine. As someone that lives in Wisconsin, I might not agree with California having abortion legal, but that is their right as a state, and if the people of that state rise up one day and say more of them, I know we've got a lot of good conservatives on California as it is, but more of them want to rise up and say, okay, we're tired of this. We're tired of the nonsense. Abortion is morally wrong. And they elect a, a, a government that's going to be committed to saying, okay, we're going to outlaw just the free-for-all we have on abortion in this state. So be it. That's the right of Californians to do. It's not the right of the U.S. government under the Constitution to say abortion is legal based on a flimsy argument from, and call it a precedent. If you want abortion legal in this country, it's a constitutional amendment, period. That's what this wrote, and that, that's what they're afraid of here, too, is uh, from the, not to get off too much on a tangent here, but that's what they're afraid of. But with the Roe v. Wade just killing it is, is now, in essence, it says this has to be a constitutional amendment. Yeah, I know that the Democrats are trying or have tried or still are trying, who knows, to pass a bill that legalizes abortion nationwide and says you have to do this, fine. They don't have the support for it. They won't have the support for it. And I think even if they did, if, a, if that bill got passed, it would find itself at the Supreme Court again and probably find uh, some form or fashion uh, that it's not constitutional and that if we want abortion in this country, then it has to be a constitutional amendment. And that drives the leftists nuts because they know how hard it is to get a constitutional amendment passed. Over the course of our lifetime as a country, there's been over 10,000 amendments proposed. We have 27. So it's really hard. The standard's really high to get a an amendment passed to our Constitution. They know that, so that's why they keep pressing this. So let's go on. So gun rights being expanded. So what does the, the Second Amendment says that it's, our rights to bear arms shall not be infringed, period. 
So there's no actual expanding of gun rights. Gun rights haven't been expanded at all. Erwin Chemerinsky. What we've had is a recouping of rights stolen by overzealous activists who have no regard for the Constitution at all. That's what we have when gun rights are being expanded. No, they're not. They, they should never have been infringed upon to begin with. Now, there's cases. Yes, I agree. If you're a violent felon, you shouldn't have access to a gun. We know they get it anyway. So, you know, for what it's worth, you know, has it prevented some, some crimes? Probably. Has it prevented them all? Uh, prevented them all? No. And now the left tries to sell you that, that, oh, if we take all the guns away, it'll, the gun violence will go away. No, it won't. So we ha- it's not an expansion of gun rights. You can't get any more expansive than the words shall not be infringed. Now, the separation of church and state, th- that only goes as far as saying that uh, the church cannot rule the state and the state cannot Im- uh, impart upon the people a, a, uh, a state-approved uh, Religion. That's all the separation of church and state is. It doesn't mean that they don't intertwine. It doesn't mean we can't have prayer in school. It doesn't mean we can't have prayer before a congressional assembly, which they do, and then they do stupid crap like say amen and a woman. Remember that bit of idiocy? The separation of church and state has nothing to do with driving God out of everything. That that's not what it means here. It means no state-sponsored uh, religion, and no, the church cannot, uh, a la the Holy Roman uh, Catholic Empire, cannot the, the, the church cannot rule as, as the state, right? Like you have in Iran with the, the uh, it, it basically the Islamists running everything under a, you know, a, a, a state or a state-sponsored or religion-sponsored government, whatever you want to call it. So uh, there's no uh, there's no degradation of the separation of church and state. It's it's a term that's been bastardized over the years. And then there's the thing that probably causes the most worry among leftists. It's the limiting of the administrative state's power. They don't like that. They want unaccountable, unelected bureaucrats telling you what to do every single day. They want unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats with the power to crush your freedom. That's what they want. Why do you think Biden tried a, a ministry of truth that was quickly scrapped? What? Look at what's happening with the FBI now. Who on the left is calling for the FBI to be disbanded because it's infringing upon civil, civil liberties and people's rights? Not many. Not many, if any, at all. Because that's what they want. They want a bureaucracy that isn't beholden to be elected, where they could get their preferred people possibly cycled out because people got tired of them. That, that's what causes the most heartburn, I think, here for the left, is this idea of limiting the bureaucratic state. You... And the Supreme Court got it right. The last thing I uh, remember is, uh, or the last case, I believe, was the Supreme Court limiting the EPA's power, which they rightfully did. I didn't elect the EPA to do anything. I didn't elect the EPA to have uh, to have policymaking power, to have rulemaking power. 
I elect officials for my district, my congressional district, and my senator to do that at the federal level. I don't need the EPA to do it. The EPA shouldn't do it. And the, the, the Supreme Court was right in limiting their power in doing it. It's a case where we have uh, certain individuals in, in government, elected officials, that just want to kick their power to these bureaucracies so they don't have to make a decision, and it makes their re-election campaign easier. They can come up with a few sound bites and sound good, and that's it, and get re-elected. Our, our, our Constitution doesn't outline bureaucracies holding the power over the people. It says that the members of the legislature, because that's the biggest section of our Constitution, the legislative, uh, the, the, the part where the legislative powers are enumerated, that is the most important power of our, or most important part of our government. It's where the power, most of the power should lie. And they're the ones that should be making the decision because it's a government for the people, by the people that we go through our representatives to accomplish, not some unelected bureaucrat. It, it, the Constitution doesn't say bureaucracies have the authority to make decisions on our behalf. It was our legislators who we elected that bastardized the Constitution and gave these stupid agencies the power to do this. Or didn't challenge these stupid agencies when they tried to, to crush our freedom and liberty. Now I want a couple, uh, address a couple of cases that Chemerinsky notes in his piece that to that really seemed to have him reaching for an extra dose of Pepto. I mean, I can just feel him wringing his his hands, uh, maybe even breaking them as he's uh, as he's doing this article, writing this article here. So the first one is uh, a case. It's students for fair admissions versus the University of North Carolina, and it's the same group, students uh, for fair admissions versus Harvard College. Now, in decisions in 1978, 2003, and 2016. The court held that colleges and universities have a compelling interest in having diverse student bodies and may use race as one factor, that's the key, one factor in admissions decisions in carrying out their educational mission. Okay. I'd say this. I would argue with this, and this is probably why this keeps coming up and keeps getting challenged. At this point, aren't we past the, the point where we are using race as a determining factor in anything? whether it be worthiness of admissions in college, whether it be a job, whether it be whatever. Aren't we past the point, if you listen to progressives, we should, that's this whole ideology is that we progress and we get better, so we should be past this point of using race as a determining factor, right? Why must discrimination be fought with more discrimination? Now you might be saying, Ryan, we our, our history, but I get it. We needed to at one point, I'm not going to necessarily disagree this with this point here, of we needed to at one point in our history force the issue of, of integration, force the issue of, hey, we need to diversify things. I totally understand that. And it needed to be done. There was uh, um, ideology and mentalities that, need to, that needed to be broken, and the only way that that obviously was going to be accomplished was through passing laws and, and intentionalism. I get that. Now, though, we are 60-some-odd years on beyond that. Yes, there are racist people out there. There's always going to be racist people. You can't do anything about it. 
you're not going to change people by laws. But to say that this should be a, a, a factor in college admissions under the guise of diversity at this point is ridiculous. We are past that point, especially now you go to a college campus. I mean, uh, they're all about the diversity, right? I mean, I, you know, and I, I also understand this. There's been previous challenges to the college admissions process with this whole, hey, you can use race as a, uh, as a determining factor, and those challenges have been unsuccessful to the point, to, you know, to this point. Well, so what? I mean, so, so it becomes one of those things, as we get better, we should challenge these, these uh, laws and to make sure that they're uh, upheld, uh, being upheld, one or two, even relevant anymore. Why should we keep something on the books that isn't relevant anymore? Isn't it supposed to be, uh, anyway, race isn't supposed to be, I should say, the sole determining factor in admissions and ensuring d- diversity on campuses. You want to thought, you know, diversity in many ways, you know, thought diversity, diversity of backgrounds and experiences. And if you go with that, what's your background? What's your experience? I think you, uh, you naturally fall into this, uh, call it visual diversity that the left likes, the checking all the boxes and make sure, okay, we have to have enough of everybody here to, to be representative of the population interests and everything else be damned. But anyway, we know that race isn't supposed to be the, the sole determining factor, but yet uh, we know that isn't the case in today's hyper-woke environment. Uh, take a look at Yale University. They got busted for it, for um, for what, not admitting Asian Americans, I believe it was, for an outright having emails or something. I don't, I don't quite remember the story at this point, the, the full details, but you know, something to that effect where they got caught with some, some, you know, some pretty damning evidence saying, yeah, we're, we're intentionally discriminating. Oh yeah. We're using race as our sole determining factor here. Uh, Haven't we progressed as a society to the point where we no longer need to force the issue though? I like I said, I understand we needed to, there was ideology that had to be broken. There was a mentality that had to be broken. And sometimes the only way to accomplish that is through laws and rules and regulations. I understand that. But now, haven't we progressed to the point where we no longer need to force the issue? The left talks about not discriminating, but then goes about uh, the saying that the way to guard against discrimination is with more discrimination. It's an endless circle of stupid with this, with their thought process, and you know, and and we're never going to get out of it. It seems. And people like Chermarinsky want to, to keep it in place. Well, what about being progressive? Isn't that what it's about? Evaluating things, moving on, getting better. That's what progress, I mean, progress is the root of progressive, right? So shouldn't we move forward, progress in our thinking? And if something seems outdated, let's challenge it. And then there's this other piece here that goes along with this. And... It's. I can't believe Chemerinsky had the nerve to say in his piece, uh, I can't believe he, he had the nerve to say this. He said, this is settled law. Affirmative action, like abortion, has long been a target of conservatives. The widespread expectation is that here, too, the activist conservatives on the court will overrule more than 40 years of precedence they oppose politically. So it's only settled law when the leftists want it to be because it fits their ideology. 
That's what he means by subtle law here. Well, this fits my ideology. It's subtle law. We shouldn't look at it anymore. Never mind that I probably classify myself as a progressive and want to see us get better, and that would mean reopening things that might not be relevant anymore. But, hey, you know what? This is subtle law. Let's leave it alone. You know what? Never mind that. Never mind the fact that leftists, including Chemerinsky, are constantly attacking the settled law of the Second Amendment. They, they can, that's an amendment to the Constitution. That's as settled as it gets from a legal perspective. And they continue to attack it. And lately, they've been going after the First Amendment pretty hard as well especially when it comes to religious freedom. Now, that's been a constant, but it seems to be an especially uh, bigger topic for them now. And then the political hack, Chemerinsky has the nerve to call the justices activists. The conservative justice, conservative, I call them constitutional originalists. He has the nerve to call them activists. When Joe Biden just appointed, and the Senate confirmed, by the way, an activist judge in Kentonji Brown-Jackson. She's clearly an activist. The opposition has nothing to do with political ideology. The reviewing of these cases has nothing to do with political ideology and has everything to do with the evaluation of laws in the light of what does the Constitution say. Now, this first case and Chemerinsky's take on it makes him look like a big buffoon. But I've got a second one here because I think it's important to just show how big of a buffoon he is and to show the absolute duplicity of the ideology on the left. So here's the other case Chemerinsky notes in in his piece. It's uh, 303 Creative LLC versus Ellenis. And he says this about it. 303 Creative versus Ellenis is another discrimination case that will be heard by the Supreme Court even though there is no controversy among the, the appeals courts. The issue in this case is whether a business owner may violate state anti-discrimination laws on account of her religious beliefs. Lori Smith has a business in Colorado designing websites and wants to do that for weddings. But she says she won't do it for same-sex weddings even though such discrimination violates Colorado law. The question is whether she can use free speech as a defense against the state law. If the justices rule in her favor, they could open the door to discrimination by business based on sexual orientation, sex, and even race by simply by claiming their discrimination is protected by the First Amendment. So discrimination is okay until it isn't with the left. Discrimination is okay until it conflicts with their ideology, then we can't have discrimination anymore. Now, for constitutional scholar, Chemerinsky sure is a disappointment when it comes to the application of of the Constitution on how laws should be applied. First, this is not a free speech issue like he he described in in his piece. This is a religious liberty issue. It has nothing to do with free speech. He's not using free speech in order to discriminate and say, uh, I'm not going to serve uh, you know, anybody from the LGBTQ, whatever, alphabet community. She's saying, my religious beliefs are this, therefore I am not going to uh, go along with something with which uh, conflicts with my religious beliefs. I'm just not going to do it. That's what she's saying here. So it's not free of freedom of speech. It's a religious liberty issue and what that person holds dear and what they believe in their heart. Second, The second thing here, 
the Constitution has supremacy over state law. So this being an amendment issue, SCOTUS is right in taking up the case. He, Chemerinsky is complaining that SCOTUS is taking his case up. Again, a settled law. No, it's not. Yeah. Third, this type of, of uh, case is very similar anyway, has already been settled in the case of the Colorado baker Jack Phillips, the guy who wouldn't bake a cake for a gay wedding. This His case parallels this uh, Smith case here in that it's probably going to uh, be another reason that SCOTUS actually took it up because of those parallels. There's so many other choices for web designers. Why doesn't this Ellenist Jabroni move on? Go pick another one. Because it's not about getting the website done. That's the thing here. It's not about getting a website done. It's about punishing Christians for exercising their beliefs as protected under the First Amendment. Period. End of story. It's about punishing them. It's about making their life difficult. It's about persecution and, yes, discrimination. That's what this is about here. Yes, I am assuming Lori Smith is a Christian, and I'll tell you why. If Lori Smith were a Muslim, would this even be a story? Would there even be a lawsuit? I mean, Muslims have a pretty strong stance on homosexuality. I believe they are a whole lot less tolerant of it than Christians are. I'm a Christian. I don't agree with it, but I don't care. You do you. That, that's up to you and God. Only you can decide. You and I both know that this Ellenist character wouldn't have even approached a, mes- a Muslim web designer. And if they did and were told no website for you, they would have moved right on. There would be no lawsuit. There would be no nothing, no word about it. They would have gone to the next option. And you know what? Chemerinsky is right. This is a discrimination case. It's, a, it's about the discrimination Christians face from a society uh, from society for exercising their beliefs. That's what this is. This case is about. That's the discrimination here. At the end of the day, though, Chemerinsky looks like a buffoon for advocating for discrimination in that admissions case, saying it's settled law, we discriminate, it's okay to discriminate because diversity, and then saying that Lori Smith exercising her religious beliefs is discrimination that should not be allowed. And that's, you know, it's hiding behind the, the First Amendment. This is why the left isn't serious. It's why we shouldn't listen to them. Uh, we shouldn't take their idea. We, I'll put it this way. We should listen to them because we, they tell us everything that we need to know that they're going to do. But we shouldn't take them seriously. They have no principles. You can't just pick and choose what, uh, what uh, constitutes discrimination and what doesn't based on how it fits your personal ideology and how it makes you feel. Do you have a question or comment for the show? We'd love to hear from you. Send an email to ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. I'll answer the question or read your comments on the air. If you want to poke fun at me, fine. I'm not above laughing at myself. I've told you that before. Go in. I'd love to, to get your feedback and get your email. All right, finishing up today, I have a TikTok video of students being interviewed on a college campus from an account called Left, Middle, Right. It's a pretty wide-ranging account, I think, um, kind of just... Looking at things from all angles, I actually kind of appreciate the account. It's, it's really a, a decent account, comparatively speaking, of what's out on TikTok out there. Um, and again, I look at that stuff so you don't have to, so uh, there you go. What I'd say about this video, it's concerning, maybe even disturbing. I don't, I, I don't know. That might be a strong take, uh, calling it disturbing. I mean, maybe it is, you know, considering where we're at in the country right now. 
definitely on the concerning scale for sure. Uh, for sure. Take a listen and then decide your own adjective here. It's better, capitalism or socialism? I would say socialism personally. It allows for people to have more say in the government. Capitalism because it depends more on, on what you can achieve and not about what the states want you to do. Socialism, the equal distribution of wealth. Capitalism requires people to be exploited. Socialism would allow for more people to actually be prosperous. Capitalism is better. People have opportunity to earn lots of money. Now I'd like to ask you this. What did you notice about those students being interviewed? The first thing I noticed was how those in favor of capitalism were obviously not American. They had obvious accents. While those for socialism were obviously Americans, it might have been Canadians. There's some, you know, Canadians that you, the accent isn't, you know, distinguishable from an American accent. But well, let's just call them Americans just for, for the sake of argument here. So I'm not going to focus on, on the international, obviously, international students uh, that were in favor of capitalism. What I want to focus on is, is those students, and I want to just rip apart to shreds their statements on socialism and why they think it's good. One of the major concerns, I think, here is that our own citizens, especially from a young age, have eaten up the lie that socialism is somehow better, that it, it somehow creates this utopia. Now, let's pick apart the reasons given by those who think socialism is a better avenue than capitalism. So it's like, uh, like the first one here. So the first one said that socialism allows people to have more say in the government. <laughs> I wish I had a decent laugh track because I'd play it right now, on, right after this comment. What planet are they from? Socialism allows people to have more say in the government. I'd encourage this student to go and talk to a Venezuelan or Chinese friend and ask them how much say they have in their government. The elections in those countries are shams. Dissenting opinions are crushed. There's no freedom of press. Uh, political opponents are jailed. So in what realm of possibilities does socialism allow for someone to have more say in their government? Who the hell told this person this? What book did they read that that was an, a statement of fact? Because anywhere you look... It, socialist governments are ruled by an elite few, and that's it. And the people have no say. Socialism can't survive with dissenting opinions out there. The system will collapse if too many dissenting opinions get out because dissenting opinions eventually wake people up. Those running a socialist cabal then get exposed for the incompetence that they are and how they've screwed the people over for whatever time they've been in power. Now, let's look at the second one, line number two here, I call it. The equal distribution of wealth. This is really a simple one. Why do we see so many immigrants, illegal and legal, coming to America from socialist countries? If there's equal distribution of wealth... Wouldn't they want to stay in their own home country and reap those benefits? If, if everybody was equally wealthy, had the same whatever, wouldn't they stay? Why would you come here where you actually have to, to work? Why wouldn't you stay somewhere where everybody's getting the same, you know, 
highest corruptocrat on down to the lowest person living in a slum. Why wouldn't you stay there and reap those benefits if there was equal distribution of wealth? That, that, that one's just so easy to debunk. I mean, do they teach people anything in economics anymore? Do they teach people anything in history anymore? And now I know, I know where this is coming from. I know that these life neophytes will hold up the Scandinavian countries as a model for socialism and equal distribution of wealth. They're not socialist countries. They're still capitalist countries that have a really a high uh, social safety net that requires high taxation to fund. Why do you think that Scandinavian countries aren't among the largest economies in the world? Because they tax their people into oblivion. They, yeah, they enjoy the social safety net of free health care, free college, whatever else, but they can't buy, they don't have enough money to buy cars. They don't, many of them don't own their own homes. Many don't own their own cars, actually, because they don't have money, because the government takes it all through taxation for the free health care and of free health care and education and whatever else the you know social product that the the government wants to give these people vote for it fine if that's what you want go for it they're not socialist countries though they still have capitalist economies with call if you want to term it this unequal wealth unequal uh, wealth distribution they have their rich people and poor people just like every other co- country around the world uh, the, the, just the stupid rolls on. I mean, if 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 these Scandinavian countries were uh, were socialist countries, they'd look like Cuba or Venezuela. They'd be, you know, look third world corruptocracies. And then the third one here, we've got. If you're watching, we've got Blondie McBlonderson here. She's all like, um, like capitalism requires people to be exploited. Congratulations on completing the required reading of Karl Marx's manifesto, but you're wrong. That, that's, that, that is straight out of Karl Marx. People, uh, capitalism is, is the exploitation of the worker. Congratulations on completing a reading assignment. We look at this. Another, these are just so easy to debunk. Where are the stories of forced labor coming from? Where are the stories of exploited labor coming from? It's not the capitalist countries. Are, are there uh, exploited workers here? Sure. Is it a large problem? No. Very, 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 very slight problem at best. We have laws and everything else in place that uh, guard against that. And there are severe penalties for those found guilty of exploiting and enforcing labor, etc. Who takes the most heat? China. China takes a lot of heat for forced labor. The Uyghurs, they have work camps. They uh, forced organ harvesting in China. I'd go look that stuff up. That's what a socialist regime looks like, communist regime. And we have stories of, of, of people in China in these factory where the complexes where they're housed and they work and are housed and they work in the same area. We have stories of people who commit suicide because they aren't allowed to take a job at a different factory. They aren't allowed to leave except for maybe the, the Chinese New Year celebration. Essentially, it's kind of like forced labor, no? And then they can't take it anymore that, they're at their, you know, that they decide to end their life because they can't take their current situation anymore. So who's being exploited here? It's capitalist countries don't exploit labor. It's you can't. 
If you're found exploiting labor, one, you run afoul of the law. Two, people will just up and leave your, your company. You won't have any workers. In capitalist countries, workers actually have power. We have unions. We have people just free to move about, go from job to job. If they feel like they're being exploited, a person will leave that job, period. And then you have Blondie McBlonderson's friend here with the socialism would actually allow more people to be prosperous. Uh, another dunce. Do you actually understand that social, uh, socialism actually demotivates people? If the government is going to take the wealth from my hard work, what I've done, the work I've put in, got paid for, if they're going to take it and redistribute it, would I work? No, why would I ever work? We're, how am I going to be prosperous in that situation then? I'm not. It doesn't allow people to be prosperous. It, it takes the prosperous ones, takes from the prosperous ones, give to the ones that don't do anything, and demotivates the prosperous ones to the point where they don't do anything either, and the whole thing collapses. And I'll say this, you want proof? I'll give you the proof. Here's the proof right here. If socialist countries are overflowing with prosperity, then why are their citizens looking to immigrate to Western capitalist countries? And why aren't more Western citizens flocking to get in on the bonanza of prosperity in the socialist countries? Where is that flow of people? Oh, they're oh, socialist countries. That's great. They're so prosperous. I'm going to go there. They don't. They come here. They go to other Western nations. Now, what you have here, the, the, all these examples, what you have here, is a perfect illustration of the failure of our school system at every level, elementary school on up through college, graduate school, PhD level. It's obvious none of, the, none of these commie college students have given any thought to these positions they just spouted off on this video. They're just regurgitating the propagandist talking points that have been given to them. Now, some may change their tune after they start seeing how big of a chunk of their wages get taken out and go to waste on government programs. But we can't rely on that. We can't rely on people coming to that realization on their own because a lot of times uh, there's just as many that don't that, uh, that you know, need to be reached. We need to take every opportunity to poke holes in this ideology when we hear a young person parroting these socialist talking points, when we hear a young person saying how good socialism is and how wonderful it is and how, how we'll be in a utopia if we just do it. We won't. Eventually, these people, these college students, eventually will be in positions to make decisions that affect our lives, they, they, that'll affect the direction of the businesses we work in, that uh, affect the education our kids, grandkids, great-grandkids get. Most importantly, the direction of our country. We can't let this ideology go unchallenged. We must work to continue to debunk it. All right, before I go for today, remember to join Tom and I for Laughs and Liberty Live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Uh, Central Time, that is, on Rucksack Radio. The live show streams on River, Riverside FM with an interactive chat. So you can chat with Tom and I on the Riverside stream. And also, we've got it streaming at the same time on YouTube. If you can't get into Riverside for whatever reason, it's on YouTube as well. If you miss a live show, you can't make it. The recording is up uh, next the next day on the YouTube channel, so check it out. Tom and I both, we'd love to have you tune in and join us and join us in the chat. We love interacting with you. 
Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for tuning in. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time.